Alrighty, well, let's pray, and then we'll get right into the book of Nahum. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you, dear God, for what it does in our hearts and how it, it uh, gives us direction. And uh, Lord, just how it gives us strength and sustenance throughout our week. I pray that you would uh, do thy work, bless in all that is said and done. And I pray that Jesus Christ would be pleased with all that we say and do. And we'll thank you in the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray these things. Amen. Three chapters, 47 verses, 1,285 words is the book of Nahum, a very powerful book. Written during Nahum's prophecy that took place during the reign of King Hezekiah. So let's just jump right into verse number one. We'll grab some verses because in the first handful of verses, it's actually an introductory time, but it's very important. So let's pay attention to what he's being said. Then I'm going to lay some foundation for you. Then we'll make some practical uh, application from the book of Nahum like we always do. And then toward the end of it, we'll draw some conclusions. So let's look in verse number one. Of chapter 1, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. Now, let me, could I just stop and say something real quick as we read down this? When it talks about jealousy, and, and it does that throughout the scripture, that God is a jealous God, that's not, that's not the petty jealousy that we as human beings so often feel. We feel jealous when somebody has something we don't, or we feel jealous when somebody is recognized and we're not, or we feel jealous somehow that perhaps uh, there, there's, there's something in somebody else's life that we wish was in our life, and so we become jealous over them. Or perhaps we feel that, that um, uh, we're in danger of losing someone or something we have, and, and, and jealousy becomes a part of that. I remember... I remember in junior high school, <laughs> in junior high school, the petty jealousy that went throughout as, you know, one guy's girl was seen actually having the audacity to talk with another guy in front of wing number five. And so jealousy raided into his heart. And it wasn't but just a few hours later that their relationship broke up. And jealousy is the green-eyed monster that's destroyed lives. It's, it's ruined personalities and broken up homes. And so that's not what this is. This is a wholly pure jealousy simply because of the fact that, that um, uh, God, uh, God is holy. And because God knows what's best for us, wait a minute, and because He loves us so much as His children, we'll come back to that, God is jealous for us. In other words, I want my son to have the best. I want my son to make the best choices. I want my children to enjoy life. Those are all good things. And when it says that I'm jealous for them, it, it, doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that I am, uh, that, that I'm petty. It means that my desire for those that are mine, uh, that, that they would have the very best that God in life has to offer them. And so he says there, God is jealous. And the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, 
and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers, Bashan. And remember, that's the Golan Heights. Don't forget where Bashan is. That's the Golan Heights. Across, as you stand in Tiberias with it to your back, you're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and you look across Galilee, that mountain range there, that's Bashan, okay? And that, that is, uh, that's what today is called um, the, the Golan Heights. And it was called that also in the land of Golan. So look again in verse 4. And Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? Now this is reciprocal, okay? Reciprocal question. Who can stand at his indignation? Well, obviously nobody. And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? Again, nobody. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Watch this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Powerful, powerful scriptures that are, that are used in the opening of this book. We'll come back to those in just a little minute. Now, the, 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 the name Nahum actually means full of comfort, okay? It's a, little bit, it's a little bit unusual because as you read the book of Nahum uh, that, that obviously carries his name, there's not a great deal of comfort in it. And the reason for that is that it is written to the Ninevites, the, the, the people of the city of Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And so since they are the focus of the book, there's not a lot of comfort there. We'll, we'll mention that again in just a moment because, because there's a significance in that. So the Bible says that he is an Elkoshite. What does that mean? He was born in Elko, Nevada. No, that's not it whatsoever. He's an Elkoshite. Where was the city of Elko? That means simply that he was from Elko, the city of Elkosh. All right, so where was that located? Well, we're not totally certain. We, we, we uh, read the writings of, of the ancient writers, and it is identified as a city located somewhere on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. If you go with me to the Holy Land, we'll visit the city of Capernaum. And we know, we know about Capernaum in the Scripture, and, and Peter's um, uh, mother-in-law was healed there, and Jesus sat there and healed long lines of people. Jesus moved to Capernaum. That became the headquarters of his earthly ministry for the last three years of his life on earth. And, and the, the, the name, the guide will tell you, the name Capernaum is actually Capernaum. Capernaum. That's how they say it over there. Capernaum. And so what that literally means is the town or the city of Nahum. And so they believe there that... that um, perhaps, that this was the city where Elkosh was and, and that, that what we call Capernaum was founded in the same spot there on the Sea um, of, of Galilee. And so it's, it's, it's interesting that, that Capernaum means 
the village of Nahum. Now, so he's talking to us. He tells us immediately, listen to this statement, the burden of Nineveh. Now, immediately when we, we run into that right away, the burden of Nineveh, that's a, that's a statement. And what does it mean? It means that there is going, that this is going to be a burdensome prophecy um, that's going to be delivered to the Ninevites, okay? It's going to be delivered to the, the, uh, the people of Nineveh. Now, you will recall, I'm sure, that it was the Ninevites that Jonah, the prophet, was sent to, and uh, he was called to prophesy against them. And while the Ninevites, the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire, was certainly feared, they were, they were equally as hated. Okay? So the emotions and the passions involved in Jonah's refusal to start with to go to Nineveh wasn't just because he was afraid of them, it was because he hated them, okay? He hated them, he despised. They were a despicable people, they were a bully, they were a bully nation. They were a marauding, uh, rogue people that literally overthrew anything and everything in their path, and they were noted for their cruelty. They would cut off the legs and the arms, noses, and tongues, and other parts of the body of people that they held captive. Their way of branding them to let everybody know, that guy staggering around town, he's got a brand on his shoulder. No, no, no. That's not how they branded them. You would notice people missing ears, or missing a nose, or, or something like that that would visibly let you know that they were um, that, that, that uh, they were captives, they were people that had brought in. Of the worst kind of prisoner, they would gouge their eyes out. They would bring them into the city, literally gouge their eyes out, and, and if they didn't kill them after that, after the torture, then, then they would be staggering around as a, what we would call a homeless person, begging on street corners, and that was their, that was their torture. There is actually recordings of bringing in huge herds of captive people. And because they did not want the responsibility of taking care of children, they would build bonfires. And at their celebrations, they would toss young children into the bonfire alive and, and just carry on a party while the children screamed and were burned alive. I mean, they were hated because of their, their absolute vileness. Not only that... But, but the, it was a psychological warfare. So if that's going on, people are hearing about it, they're afraid. They're scared to death. They don't want to get captured. Okay? Nobody wants to get captured, tortured, physically maimed. They're afraid of being caught. And, and um, I, I heard a guy say the other day that, that was fighting on Iwo Jima. I saw a program talking about the islands of the Pacific and, and, and the, the different islands that they fought on and unbelievable battles, and rather than being caught, rather than being caught by the Japanese who at that time uh, tortured people grotesquely, and sometimes you would find them after torturing them, they would prop them up on a, on a, on a pathway around the island and their buddies would find them. And I won't go into the details, the grotesque details of it, but the guy said that they always, they always kept a bullet 
They always kept a bullet in their 45. They, they reserved one bullet just in case they were overrun and were about to be captured and they would choose death rather than being captured by the, um, uh, by the Japanese. I told you the story, I think, la uh, when we talked about Jonah, how, how that 40,000 40, uh, uh, Chinese women jumped off of the wall and committed suicide when Genghis Khan was coming uh, to, to, to capture them. And so it, sometimes death is preferable to what goes on. That's the way it was with the Assyrian Empire. Sometimes entire cities would simply surrender at the sight of the Assyrians approaching uh, their city. And, and, and by the way, let, let me go back to what I was saying before that. There are actually written accounts of their own soldiers having to be given extended times of leave because they were suffering from what we would call today uh, PTSD. They were suffering psychological problems because they were being ordered to torture people and burn children alive. And you could do that for so long and they began to break down emotionally and mentally. Uh, and, and so even in their own ancient writings, they talk about, they talk about that very fact. It's no wonder that in Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a, a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now I want you to listen carefully. Because it's interesting to me. The Bible said the reason he went down to Joppa, now this is all going to tie into Nahum. Our, the foundation of this book is, is laid in Jonah's book. Okay, so to so grasp it, we need to go back and just take another snapshot of Jonah. Okay, <clears throat> When Jonah left, the Bible doesn't say, and we talk about what they did and talk about the fear and all that kind of stuff. But the Bible doesn't say that he fled from the presence of the Ninevites. That's what the Scripture says. It doesn't say he left because he was afraid. Now, was he afraid? I, I think that that might be a good supposition. Okay, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think anybody's going to go into Nineveh popping gum. Okay? And not just go walk in and say, hey, dudes, what's happening? God's got a message for you. That's probably not going to happen. There would probably be some natural trepidation. I think we can imagine that and, 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 and probably feel that for him. But the reason he left was he was running from the presence of the Lord, okay? He wasn't running from the Ninevites. He was running from God. And the reason for that is because what we don't know in chapter 1 is because we're, we're, we're not privy to a conversation that was going on during this whole time that we're told about in chapter 4. Okay, so in chapter 1, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. <coughs> Jonah says, I'm not going there. He gets on the ship and said, I'm going to Tarshish. What we did not hear in chapter 1 is what we're told about in chapter 4, and that is a conversation that's going on between God and Jonah. Okay? And, and Jonah gives hint to that in Jonah chapter 4. <clears throat> let, me read, let me read for you, all right? Everybody with me? Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Listen to this. And he prayed unto the Lord. Now this is after revival broke out. So Jonah's sent, 
he, he preaches to the Ninevites. You know what his message, we, we don't know the full entirety of it. I don't know. All the Bible tells us is he said, you know, God said, repent or you're gone. And so they repented. The king said, who knows if maybe God will spare us. So in sackcloth and ashes, he leads his people in repentance. The whole city repents and there's a revival that breaks out. From our study of it, it's the greatest revival in the entire Bible, as far as I'm aware of. Okay. Okay. So now that that's happened, Jonah's ticked off. Okay. So, so in verse number 3, he tells why he's ticked off. And he said this, listen. And he prayed unto the Lord, and he said, I pray thee, O Lord, number one, was not this the saying, was not this my saying, when I was yet in my country. Here's what he said. Do you remember what I said to you when I was back? When you called me? You remember in the beginning of this, what I said to you? Okay, so that's what he's saying. Was this not my saying when I was yet in the country? Therefore I fled unto Tarshish. Okay, the reason I, reason I left is because I told you what you were going to do. Number three, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentance thee of the evil. So Jonah said, I'll tell you why I ran. God, do you remember our conversation? I told you back there that when I came and I preached, if they repented, you were going to forgive them because you're a gracious and a merciful God, and I don't want grace or mercy shown to them. I want Nineveh destroyed. So I'd rather invade them with an army and kill them all than to preach the word of God to them in hopes that they might respond and then have to sit back as people are coming to the altar and getting right with God. And it was so bad that, that, that verse number 3, he has a death wish. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Wow, that's, that's a powerful... I mean, I had the greatest revival in the history of the Word, in all of the Bible, and I, I want to die because of it. That's, that's, a strange, that's a strange deal. He was so angry that he had a death wish. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, um, have you ever wanted judgment so bad on someone? Now don't raise your hand, please. Because some of you are staring at me and it's making me nervous personally. Have you ever wanted judgment on someone so bad that it was stronger than your hope for change and repentance in their life? Has there ever come a time, has there ever come a time when, when you were disappointed because of your desire for judgment that God gave mercy? Maybe you prayed for justice and they got grace. <clears throat> and it angered you. That's what happened to Jonah. Now, here we are now. Okay, let's go present time. So how far are we traveling, preacher, from Jonah's deal to Nahum's deal? 150 years. Okay. So we're 150 years later. And what's the situation with the city that repented in sackcloth and ashes and got right with God it's that they went right back to being who they were. I remember, forgive me for this, but I've always been a fight fan and always will be because that helps me know how to pray for people. And so I grew up boxing, my family did, so I've, I've, I've been to fights 
all over the place. But anyhow, I remember Joe Frazier fought George Foreman. Thankfully, I'm not a betting man because in the first fight, Joe was the champion, and I just thought I would bet everything I ever owned. There's no way in all the world George is going to beat Smoking Joe. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm listening on the radio that first night because we couldn't get it anywhere else, and I'm listening on the radio, and I'm, I'm hearing, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Howard Cosell's calling the fight, Frazier goes down, Frazier goes down. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. So when he fought him again, I was in college, and I paid the, the money to go to, uh, to go to the Civic Center in Springfield, Missouri, and watch the fight. So Joe comes out, he's got his hood on, he's bobbing and weaving, working a little bit, and just, just a different style, and he gets in the ring and he's dancing around, and they take his, they take his robe off and he's bald-headed. He shaved his head bald. He's presenting a new Joe Frazier. And, and, and um, uh, the round starts out, he takes the first round from Foreman, he's dancing around, popping a little bit, and moving and that kind of, that's not Joe, he's a bobber and weaver. You know, he's crouched low, bobbing and weaving like Tyson did, and, and I just thought to myself, I don't know if he can last this. First punch where he really got nailed, you know what he did? He went back to what he knew to do. You, 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 can't, you can't change like that when you've been boxing like that your whole life. So Nineveh, here's Nineveh. God gave them the opportunity, and they took the opportunity but the generations that followed went right back, right back. They jumped over the repentive generation. 150 years later, they're right back to doing what their forefathers had done for many, many years. Chapter 2 of, of Nahum, look there with me. Let's just start out with an alarming statement, okay? Nahum chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against thee, saith who? The Lord of hosts. Now look at me. That ought to lock your heart. That ought to lock your heart. Can you imagine, can you imagine God sending a letter and somebody said, Hey, Pastor, God sent a letter to you, and, um, and uh, here it is. And I'm like, Okay, well, it's a letter from God. I can't wait. And I open it up, and it says, Hey, Dean, I am am against you. Well, my heart's locked, okay? I mean, I'm thinking maybe he's got the wrong dean, you know what I'm saying? And so, but, but I, I'm against you, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messenger shall be heard no more. Jump with me to chapter 3. Let's pick it up, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and the prancing and of the prancing of the horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. Uh, there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpse. Wow, talk about a city. You've butchered so many people in your own town, you've got to step over them. Your streets are filled with the dead that you've killed. You've got to step over graves. People are decomposing 
in your streets. It's a horrible picture that they're given here. Verse 4, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts, behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. Boy, I want to tell you, you talk about a, you talk about a powerful a powerful statement, a, an absolute, just no holds barred, God confronting this city and, and dealing with them. It's, it's just amazing. 150 years later, God comes back and says, hey, you know what? You're doing exactly what you did earlier, and I'm going to deal with it. Now, let me make some practical applications that's going to tie up back into everything we've just said as we go along. First, first application I want to make, first lesson that I get from this, and that is, number one, that God knows best how to correct us. God knows best how to correct us. Well, Pastor, this is about Nineveh, not about Israel. This is about the children of God. So the parallel there. Probably isn't a good one. Wait a minute now. Even though the focus of his prophecy is against uh, the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, there there are side notes in this for the children of Israel. Okay, Because remember this. Remember that God had used the Assyrian Empire to come against the northern kingdom because of their rebellion against God, and God used the Assyrian, wicked Assyrian Empire to take them out and take them captive. And so they were under the thumb of the Assyrians and the Ninevites, and they're probably thinking, you know, what purpose does my life have? And yet the reality of the matter is God only used them um, because they were rebellious, the northern kingdom was. God used the Assyrians to lead them into captivity. Let me just say this. The Assyrians, like, like their leaders, uh, Shalmaneser and uh, Tiglath-Pileser uh, and guys like that, those are great names. I don't know if his mother said, Tiggy, come, come home, or if he, she used the entire name for calling for supper. I don't know how that happened, but Tiglath-Pileser, okay? And, and so, so here they are. And I, I mean, look, when you, when you think about this city and you think about their leaders, uh, you would not think that God would use them. But can I say this to you? Listen to me. God's purpose is greater than your approval. See, that's what sometimes we miss. Why does God use people that I don't think He should use? Because God's purpose is greater than who He's using. God didn't say, Tiglath-Pileser is one of the finest men I've ever known, and I've got a ministry for him. No, that's not what happened. <clears throat> he was a scoundrel, <clears throat> leading a scoundrel people, and we know that, okay? But God used Nebuchadnezzar, and remember, Nebuchadnezzar finally came to the Lord, but God used Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. Boy, you, you want to talk about another wicked empire? N- the, the Ninevites were more religious, and the Babylonians were more political, Okay, there's, that's, that was their impact. More religious in that it was, the, it was a, a harlot. It was, it was filled with witchcraft. That's spiritual tone, 
uh, uh, spiritual tone in the condemnation of them. Babylon was more of a political uh, entity, and, and, and yet God used Nebuchadnezzar, who, who boasted of himself so much that he spent time like an animal out grazing grass, uh, and, and so God used it. Why would God use, why would God use a Nebuchadnezzar to correct the people of God? Because correcting the people of God was more important to God. What God was doing, the purpose of God, was more important to God than Nebuchadnezzar. And the reasons that we might not think that to be the best decision. And so sometimes, even in our life, God uses adverse situations to bring us back on course. I don't know how many of you say, you know what, I, you know, God, I'm going to just sign a piece of paper here. If, if, I'm ever, if I'm ever out of line, if you would just... Um, if you would just send me a physical malady, I'm signing my name right here. That'll be fine with me. Ain't nobody going to do that. God, can I make some choices? Um, if I'm out of line, um, uh, could you put me in the hospital for a week or maybe take my, me out of my comfort zone? You see, when God puts us through hard times, He's not just teaching us, He's making us. He's making us. And if you take away some of the things in my life that have been adverse, I'm not where I am today. And where I am today is not where I need to be, but there's some, there, there's some things in my life. Dixie and I and, and Susie sat around, and we, we, we talked the other night about if there were things in our life we could remove, things that had happened to us, what, what would be the things that we would, we would want to remove? Okay? And the things maybe that, we, that you might think we might want to remove that we, that we wouldn't remove. And I, one of the things I said was, if I could go back, I wouldn't take cancer out of my life because I learned more about God in that time frame. It, put me, it brought me to a place where I had never been because I had ministered with people, I had counseled with people, and now the things that I had told them to do, I'm having to do myself. And I'm on a helpless uh, 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 ambulance ride to a hospital in a city where I don't even live with a doctor I don't even know and they're telling me I've got something that I had no idea I had and so I am now suddenly finding myself helpless and at the absolute mercy of God and I remember when they wheeled me back into the surgery room the last thing I said to God before the whole world began to spin and the lights went out I said God I everything is gone from my control. I don't have a handle on nothing. I am totally at your mercy, and all I can do is yield myself to you. And I, I, I wouldn't want to go back because that was such a valuable lesson to me, even though it, it was an Assyrian, even though it was a Babylonian, even though it was something that I did not want in my life. At that time, looking back on it, I can see where God used that to help make me in a way that he wanted me to make the painful th thing was that my wife said it was our marriage that no i'm kidding anyhow so um those things are not of our choosing but god knows how to reach us and love us enough to bring us pain in order to correct us 
Jump with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Everybody go to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see this. We're going to move through this. And so stay with me. But you, we, we, need to, we, need to, we need to point this. We need to put this here. Because God knows what you need to correct you. And listen to me. He loves you enough that if you're getting off course, He's not going to sit there and say, Oh, well, there's a train coming. I'm going to watch my child and hope they make it across the track. You know what He's going to do? He's going to chase you screaming. He's going to get a hold of you. He's going to turn you around. And then probably there's going to be some instructive measures to keep you from ever going back toward that direction again. He's done that in my life. If he had not, I wouldn't be here. I could go back and tell you. 17 years old, God's calling me to preach. I don't want to preach. Okay, I'm not going to deprive some team of having a, a Super Bowl winning quarterback. I cannot do that. And so I didn't want to preach. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so I'm on my bicycle, and I don't mean that literally. I'm talking about I'm going as fast as I can in the opposite direction from God. I'm playing my second basketball season. I'm heading down to Tybee Island, running from God, and I know I'm running from God. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. And I wound up on the side of the marsh with a locked-up rear end on my beautiful 1963 Mercury Comet with the 1995 Earl Schraub's paint job, sky blue, and could have lost my life. But when the smoke cleared and everything came still, I said to God, okay, all right, I know what you want, I know what you're saying, and I, I will answer. Now, should you get to that point? No, but I'm just saying my God loved me enough to pursue me down Tybee Road. And I'm thankful that he did because here I am at South Valley and my wife is blessed to have me. Amen. Now, so look with me, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Look at this. And, ha and, and ye have forgotten the ex exhortation that speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. You mean God rebukes his children? Not in this day of grace. Certainly not. God's good with everything. Anything you want to do, just grab the grace brush and paint it. You get by with anything. That's not what the Bible says. Okay, look at me, verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he does what? Chasteneth. Wow. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. The word bastard, which is used as a curse word today, simply means illegitimate. Okay, If you're a child of God and God won't correct you, this means because you're not his child. Okay? You, you're, you're claiming a child of God, but, but God corrects his children. Now watch this. Um, verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. God's trying to bring us to a place to where we, 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 we yield to the holiness. Now watch this, verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
unto them that are exercised thereby. You know, you know, do you know why God dealt with me in my life when I was running from him? Because God had for me the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You know what I live today? I live a happy life. I'm a happy man. Now, that doesn't mean everything's perfect, and it certainly doesn't mean that everything's gone my way. But it means I am content within the will of God for my life. What God was calling me to, I thought was going to be something I would not want. What I found out later was I would rather have what I have today than anything that my path would have ever led to. So God said, Dean, I'm going to correct you because I want to bring you to a place to where you're able to enjoy the blessings that I have for you. And I'm so grateful for that. Number two, let me say this to you quickly. Um, uh, when, when God corrects us, He doesn't abandon us. Now, when God corrects us, so we're talking about God knows how best to correct us. Number two, this is important to remember, when He corrects us, He's not abandoning us. And, and the reason I say that is because there's another side to this coin. Okay, there's another side to this coin. Uh, when God delivered this message through Nahum to Nineveh, there was also a message, a back message, a backside of the message that was given to Israel. Look with me in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, okay, verse 7. Look at this. The Lord is good. Well, Nineveh didn't think so. You know why? Because they weren't trusting in God. Look at this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood will he make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Watch this verse. What, what do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Watch this statement. Affliction shall not rise up, what? The second time. You, you know what he's saying? Listen. You know what he's saying? You've, you, you've been in affliction, you, you've had problems, but let me tell you something, it's not going to happen again. I'm going to deliver you. I'm coming to deliver you. And so these were words of comfort for Israel. God would settle their score. He knew who they were. He knew where they were. He knew why they were where they were. And he reminds them of this. Hey, don't ever forget the goodness of your God. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. I'll never forget the first time that I ever read that verse. I was, I was really new in my service for the Lord. I was in Bible college. There was a guy by the name of Dwayne Ward, and Dwayne was really involved in, in uh, since you may remember Dwayne, very involved at, at the college there, did some stuff with the yearbook and things like that. And I remember watching Dwayne sign his life verse. We, we would have life verses. They'd encourage you to... Your life verse, mine Psalms 91.1, and Dwayne signed Nahum 1.7. And I'd seen Philippians 4.13, Philippians 1.21, a lot of other verses, but he signed Nahum 1.7. And I remember getting my Bible when I got back to my dorm room and opening up and looking at that, and for the first time I saw that verse and it impressed itself upon me. God, in his message to the Ninevites that I'm going to deal with you, this, the back side of that coin, the other side of that message to the children of Israel is, hey, don't forget, even though, you have, even though you have been held captive and oppressed, that your God is good. Your God is good. And everything God does towards you, 
ultimately is for your good. And sometimes, like the children of Israel, our predicament is due to the poor decisions that we've made in life, and yet we have a tendency to blame God for where we are. Well, why, why am I here? Well, why don't you go back and look? You put your blinker on. You made a bad move. You made a bad choice. You entered a relationship you shouldn't enter. You did something that violated the principles of the Scriptures. Okay, so, so, so sometimes we have to face up to the fact that this isn't God's doing. This is Dean's doing. Okay, when I was going to Tybee Island as fast as I could from God, that wasn't God's problem. That was my problem. I, I was, it, God had to deal with me. Listen to me. Listen to me. People who make this statement, people who make this statement when they say it's unfair, not always, but oftentimes what they're really saying is God's unfair. Well, it's unfair. Well, wait, wait a minute now. What do you mean by that? Do you, do, you, do you mean that God's unfair? So we have to be careful because what will happen is sometimes we'll talk ourselves into a situation. Remember that, your, remember that your tongue, it's a steering device. Okay? It's like a governor that turns a ship or a bit that turns a horse. You can talk yourself into a direction. So be careful, be careful when things go your way uh, 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 a way that you don't want them to go and, and you begin to talk about how unfair life is. Sometimes it's not God's fault and sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes it's the fault of people that make their own choices. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you took the blame for somebody else's choice? I sure have. You ever wondered what could I have done more? What could I have done better? Have you ever burdened guilt in your life that literally made you physically sick to your stomach? I have. If you ever want to talk with me about it, I'll be glad to sit down and talk with you about it. But it's not a decision that I made. It's a decision that somebody else made, and I vicariously took upon myself those decisions. So you've got to be careful. You have to be careful. That, that, that we don't do that. We, we have to watch out for that. So, so, so here's the point. Here's the point. God hasn't abandoned them to the Assyrians. He, he is he's simply um, uh, uh, using uh, the Assyrians as a correction. Let me give you a verse. I want you to write this verse down. This is a great verse for you. All right. Pastor Dean, what does God think about me? Are you ready for this? I want you to think about this verse of Scripture. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Read who he's saying that to. He's not saying that to people that are standing in the choir singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Or coming soon, coming soon, maybe morning, maybe noon. No, he's talking to people that are disobedient and rebellious. And God is saying to them, guys, listen, let me tell you about, let me tell you what I think about when I see you. My thoughts are thoughts of peace, not of evil. I want to bless you. God wants to bless his children. And the thing that disturbs me about young people that I talk to and every age person that I talk to that's going in the opposite direction of God, I want to grab him and say, no, 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 no. 
What you don't understand is that God has great things for you. And that God has great blessings for you. And that God, God has good thoughts toward you. God wants to bless your life. When I was running from God as a teenager, I thought it was because God didn't know what was best for my life. But you know what I found out? God knew exactly what was best for my life. And I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying that today. The problem with Jonah is he couldn't see past the gourd <laughs> that hung above his head. And so here's Jonah. Here's Jonah. He, he, he thought Nineveh had gotten away with their years of sadistic torture and butchery. But God, in His mercy, was giving them an, just one opportunity to uh, that generation room to repent. You know what Jonah wanted, by the way, in the belly of the fish? You, what did Jonah pray for? I, I need some mercy right here. I've been running. I've been doing what I was supposed to do. Endangered the lives of other people. God, would you be merciful to me? The fish vomits him up on land. You know what Joseph does? He takes a three-day journey and makes it in one day. He's ready to do God's bid. But you know what he did not want? He did not want for others what he wanted for himself. He needed mercy, but he didn't want anybody else to get it. And so, so it's, a, it's a great lesson for us. Let me say number three, and, I, and I'm going to have to hasten, but number three, um, God is always in control. Now let me just say this real quick. When Adam sinned, it threw the world into a mess that it has never recovered from since. Okay, I mean, It's just, just horrible. Adam, Adam, who lived 900 and something years, think about his sin, and think about 900 and something years later, all the events that took place between his sin and, and his death, everything that Adam got to see, the results for generations of his wrong decision. It's horrible. It was absolutely horrible. The consequences continue even unto this day. When I was a kid, when I was a kid in the 60s, the hippies walked around with the bell bottoms and flowers in their hair, and they talked to us about a utopia coming, and guess what? The utopia never came. And it won't till Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on this earth. And in case you hadn't noticed, it's not getting better. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And yet at no point in the past and at no point in the future has God ever lost control. God is in absolute control. And remember the verses we read in chapter 1? It, it, it talks about, uh, it talks about uh, how uh, that the whirlwind, uh, the Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, the clouds, or the dust of His feet. You remember the song? Um, it's clouds, illusions, I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. Joni Mitchell wrote that song. You look up in the sky and all, all these clouds, and there's different weird shapes and floating here and there. You know what? That's the dust of his feet. And God is great. The mountains quake at him. The hills melt. The earth is burnt, burned at his presence. That's a... That's a he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry. God can look at the ocean. I was just there at Lincoln City. God can look at the ocean and say, dry up, bam. It's like a desert. I mean, that's our God. So at no point has God ever lost control. Think of this for just a moment. 
we move to my last point, but think of this just for a moment as, as we make our way there. The Persian Empire, also known as the Achaemenian Empire, stretched from Iran into Central Asia and Egypt, yet it is no more. The Han, uh, or the Han Dynasty established uh, in China lasted more than 400 years. The Mongol Empire, I watched a program the other day on the Mongol Empire, uh, one of the largest countries, uh, contiguous, uh, contiguous uh, land empires in history. Um, and and the, the empire of, of the Mongols under Genghis Khan is amazing. It, you know that it's estimated that there are 16 million people in the world today that are descendants of Genghis Khan? I think it's one out of every 20 people, or one out of every 200. It's amazing. It's just it's staggering when you think of it. The Ottoman Empire under uh, Suleiman the Magnificent covered portions of three continents. The Babylonian, the Grecian, the Assyrian, the Roman. They all give testimony to the fact that God is in control. Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler uh, stomps his hobnail boot and, and thinks that he's going to build a superior race that rules the world. Where's Hitler? Well, he either died in a bunker in Berlin at the end of the war, or he's playing lead guitar in a group in Canada today. I have no idea which of those are true, but they have programs now that are actually trying to, trying to track Hitler. They thought he escaped. Mussolini, Stalin, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, all of these guys that thought they were going to rule the world. Where are they today? In hell. And where is God? He's on the throne. So here's the thing about, here's the thing about our all-power, powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, sovereign God. He has never lost the handle for a minute. You say, well, preacher, things aren't going good in Washington. Yeah, but they're going good in heaven. I love the song, everything's all right in my father's house, in my father's house, in my father's house. Everything's all right in my father's house where there's joy, joy, joy. Heaven isn't Washington. That's the swamp. Okay? Heaven's not Washington. So no matter how it's going here on earth, I want to just tell you, God's still on the throne. He's never lost, it's never lost the handle whatsoever. Now here's the thing that we've got to grasp. It was, it, the, 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 listen, the, the fact, the, look with me, look with me in, um, go, go with me in chapter 3. Let, let's, let's just finish this, all right? So here's my last point, payday comes someday. Let's read chapter 3, look at, look at chapter 3, let's read verse 19. <clears throat> here's what he says to Nineveh, final verse, There is no healing of thy bruise, thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute, that word brute means noise or announcement of. All that hear the brood of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? God said this, as soon as the word of your destruction, Nineveh, gets out, let me tell you, there's going to be no sadness, no sorrow, there's going to be celebration. Everybody's going to clap. Nobody's going to feel sorry for you. Because you've tortured everybody. You have been brutal to everybody single person and just as sure 
as God is God, that's going to happen. Now, wait a minute. It did happen. You know when? A hundred years later. See, here, here's us. Here, here, here's you and I. Get them, God. When? Friday night. Nail them this Friday night. Okay? I'm going to be near with my, with my iPhone. I want to record it because I want to watch it over and over again. Do you know what? I heard a preacher say many, many years ago when I was just young in the ministry. He said, God don't always pay off on Friday night. But God always pays off. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Verse number 8 says, But he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Here's the deal. We want God to do it now. And God said, I'm going to judge Nineveh. I'm going to judge Nineveh. And 10 years later, it hadn't happened. And, and 20 years later, it hadn't happened. And, 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 and a half century later, it hadn't happened. And 75 years, it hadn't happened. And 99 years, it hadn't happened. And then in the 100th year, the Babylonians rose up and crushed the Assyrian Empire. And they were no more. So the question is this, can we trust God? And when we say we can, we have to mean we can trust God's timing. Because you know what God knows? You ready for this? Do you know what God knows? God knows everything we don't know. He knows what's best for us, and He knows what's best for them. And one of the hardest things in all the world, in your life and in my life, is to turn the clock over to God and say, here it is. Here it is. I don't know when or how or what. I'm not just leaving the results with you. I'm claiming your promises, but I'm giving you the clock. You you set the timing because you know what's best for the timing. Now, I'm, I'm writing a book. I don't know when I'll be done with it. I, I, I've got one book I'm fixing to put out that somebody else did for me. But I'm writing a book that goes through every day of the year and what happened on that day of the year. It's a book, it's a history book that looks at God's lessons through history on January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, all the way through. One of the things that I love about history and that I'm so fascinated about history is that the events of history illustrate the truth of the Word of God. Everything. Everything. Uh, my, I put an article on Facebook recently and got some controversial stuff from it that shouldn't have been because, anyhow. So, um, you, know what the, you know what little bighorn, you, you, know what it, you know what it teaches us? It teaches us pride cometh before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Just, it's, what, what, what was little bighorn? It is the word of God lived out in history. So here's what I want to say to you. If you look at history, and you'll look at, if you'll be honest, and look at your life and the life around you, you'll find out, you'll find out that it bears the truth out that God is just.
and that God knows what you're going through, where you're at, why it's happening. And I learned this the hard way. God can deal with your situations better than you can. God can deal with your situations better than you can deal with them. And you'd be wise, you'd be wise to let him do so. Well, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. I pray now that you will bless us and use us for your honor and glory. Have your way and will. And uh, Lord, do in our hearts that which only you can do. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.